Hey friends, it's Eric here. Thanks for listening to the Building Us podcast. Hey, I want to invite you to follow me on my new show, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School, where I take a deeper dive into money and financial topics. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. I hope to see you there. I always default to Aristotle's definition where he said influence is the art of getting someone to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. And so it really comes down to that communication, how we communicate can make all the difference between somebody saying yes and somebody saying no. So for me, that's uh, the foundation that you need to set so that you understand going forward what everybody is talking about. Welcome back to the Building Us podcast. I am Eric Garcia, certified financial planner and financial advisor. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Matt Morris, family therapist and couples counselor. Matt, how are you doing? It is a lovely, lovely day in New Orleans. The weather has been fantastic. And I don't know if you know this, and by the time people are listening to this, it, it won't be the case. But today it won't be a national, lovely day. Right. It won't it might not be a lovely day. But today is National Coffee Day. Did you know that? I I didn't, but I know that you're a fan of coffee, so I'm not surprised. So, and you have you have picked on coffee as being um, kind of budget busters hmm. for people with their money. So I thought it would only be fitting if we started off really quick and talked about about coffee. So th- this is this is how typically the conversation about coffee being a budget buster buster is is presented. So I don't know what the average cup of coffee is because I I don't typically buy coffee at coffee shops. But let's say $5. You go into a coffee shop, you drop $5 every day for seven days and do that for 40 years. And let's say if you didn't do that, I know that's shocking, but if you didn't do that, you invested the money in an account that earned 8% per year. Do you know how much money you would have? Uh, $750,000. Oh, too much. $500,000. A All lot right. of money. A lot of money. So you are right that um, that a small daily purchase can bust your budget. But that could be anything. So, yeah. um, so let's not I pick, let's not, I pick on coffee because I don't want to talk about beer budget busters. Because you don't, because you don't want to give up beer. That's right. Do you, do you know who came up with the coffee National Coffee Day by chance? Bulgers. No, it actually started in Japan. It was the Japanese Coffee Association, and then it was yeah. picked up in the U.S. in 2005. Probably the Coffee Association. So I would imagine it was their uh, their their way to influence us to drink and buy more coffee, not to, not to bust our budgets. They just wanted to sell more of their product. And it just so happens today on our podcast, we have a guest who studies influence, studies influencing people specifically, Brian Ahern. And I'm going to go ahead and read Brian's bio here. And then Brian, I'm just going to have you follow and, and add maybe something that is not included in this bio that we just need to know about you. So you are a chief influence officer at Influence People. Uh, you're an international trainer, a TEDx presenter and consultant. You specialize in, in applying the science of influence in everyday business situations. Uh, you're one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently hold the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer designation. And I'm sure you can tell us a little bit about that. Um, that spe- uh, specialization was earned uh, directly from Robert um, Cialdini, PhD, who is the most cited living social psychologist on uh, on the science of ethical influence. Um, your book, Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade That Are Lasting and Ethical, was named one of the top 100 influence books of all time by Book Authority. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, Eric. And, and um, you said or you that I could fill in something about my bio that people wouldn't know based on what you read. Mm. Well, I would probably say I would be a millionaire multi-times over uh, if it were not for what Matt just shared about coffee, because I drink a ton of coffee and I drink a lot of scotch. So um, I'd probably have a whole lot more money in the bank if it weren't for that. You know, there's, there's actually a calculator. You can, you can Google it like a latte calculator, like how much money you would have if you invested it as opposed to buying latte. So I bet you there's a scotch, um, a scotch calculator. And you know what? I I won't use it because there's no sense in looking back. I'm only looking forward. (laughs) 
And as we said, uh, there's a lot of people who get a lot of joy from things that they drink, including coffee. I am not suggesting for one second that people give up coffee. If you go back and listen to my shows, I actually advocate for for nice coffee. So I, I am a fan of, I don't celebrate, I don't like holidays typically. I don't like someone telling me what I should celebrate. Um, so um, I drank my normal coffee this morning. Brian, let's get into influence. Sure. Um, years ago, uh, I, I studied a lot of leadership. And one of the definitions of leadership that I like the most is leadership is influence. Mm-hmm. And this is the exact thing that you study. Now, you're not a, a you're not a social psychologist, and you're not a behavioral economist. But those are topics that influence, uh, or, or or that that there's been a lot of study about influence. Tell us a little bit about kind of set the stage for us. What is influence? How did you get into it? How, how has this become a life uh, a career for you? Okay, well. When it comes to influence, I typically would ask an audience, you know, what's your layman's definition of influence? And what I will hear more than anything is uh, to change somebody's thinking or to convince them of something. And both of those might be a good first step, but they're not enough. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys, if, if you have kids, but if you do and you turn to your son or daughter and you say, hey, you need to clean your room. You don't want them to look at you and say, that's a great idea. You have changed my thinking about that. You want them to get in there and clean their room. And so I, when I talk about influence, I'm really talking about ultimately behavior change. Uh, it's not enough in most instances that somebody thinks it's a good idea. You know, Eric, in your business, it's not a, enough that they think it's a good idea to save more for retirement. You want them to save more. So you want to change their behavior. And I always default to Aristotle's definition where he said influence is the art of getting someone to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. And so it really comes down to that communication. How we communicate can make all the difference between somebody saying yes and somebody saying no. So for me, that's uh, the foundation that you need to set so that you understand going forward what everybody is talking about. As as, As a follow up, Brian, I do want to ask about the term influence, because right now the word influencer is very popular. And and I hear that a lot in in relationship to social media, that that person's a social media influencer or they're they're a a thought influencer. Has that word become very popular in the last few years in in a way that's different than you use it? It it is different. I really lean on the psychology and what does the research have to say about how do we interact with people and communicate. And for me, at least, when I think of influencers, I traditionally think of uh, younger people who are staying at a resort and showing that they're having so much fun and have developed enough of a following that they can go to uh, maybe a resort and say, hey, look, let us all stay here for free. We will post pictures. We'll get more people to come here. So they have created some social proof Um, But I don't think a lot of them, if I sat down and and talked to them for any length of time, would really understand what is the psychology behind influence and how do I tap into that to get to a better result. There are many people who uh, do enjoy some success and sometimes they do things wrong. But what I would say is they could probably have more success if they actually understood what the research said and, and were strategically applying it. And I think if you look at the definition that you laid out from Aristotle, it's it's to get someone to do something that they ordinarily wouldn't do if they weren't asked. So so that's there's right. a there's an element of um, of asking that's part of how you define influence. Yeah, uh, asking is better than telling. That goes to one of the psychological concepts. But there are other things that we can do too that aren't necessarily the asking part. And that's why I say in the communication, I will more broadly say, because sometimes we don't ask, sometimes it's other things that will cause somebody to say yes to us. It it may be simply that they really like us. Um, So if we can build those relationships, that becomes really vitally important. But I think it all falls under the communication of influence. So you think of influence, there's a couple of words that come to mind that you use in your book. And I think it's important that uh, we, we kind of define these Uh, and lay the groundwork as we move forward in this conversation. I think of persuasion or persuading. I think of manipulation. So here we have influence, persuade, and manipulate. Kind of break those three words down to me. What's the difference? What's the same? And what are we talking about here? 
Okay. I, I use influence and persuasion quite often interchangeably. Uh, I can be a person of influence. I really can't be a person of persuasion, right? So I may have influence by virtue of who I am and what I've done. And, and even if I'm not trying to influence people, they may listen to me. Persuasion becomes very um, thoughtful. You know, when you are pers- you are trying to persuade somebody, again, I may not be trying to influence somebody, but I might be a person of influence. So persuasion really gets to the heart of what Aristotle was talking about. It's trying to change that, that person's behavior. Uh, manipulation would be on the other side of the coin, where manipulation is trying to get people to do thing with, things without regard to their personal benefit or any of the tactics that I might use to make that happen. Um, And when I talk to people about ethical influence, I always talk about three keys that have to be present if you are ethically influencing people. The first one is truthfulness. We not only tell the truth, but we don't hide the truth. It's not enough for me, Matt, if I'm going to sell my home to you and I tell you about all these truthful things, but in the basement, there's a crack in the foundation and I have a rug over it. Mm-hmm. If you buy my house and discover that crack and you come back to me and say, Brian, there was a crack in the basement, me saying, well, you didn't ask. That is not going to do anything for you. And it's certainly not going to make me look like somebody who's honest. But what we learn when we understand how to influence people, we can talk about some shortcomings or weaknesses in whatever it is that we might be offering or proposing. And if we do it the right way, we can also actually turn that sometimes into strengths. Because if I were to say to you early on, Matt, hey, Matt, you know, before we get too far in here, I just want to let you know there is a crack in the basement. I bring you downstairs and I move the carpet. I have now probably shown you the worst part of the house. But you're looking at me saying, hey, man, this guy's up front. He's honest. He's he's not trying to hide anything here. And now we can look at what these strengths are, the the positive things about the home. Mm -hmm. And you are more likely in a scenario like that to buy than if I waited till the very end and said, oh, by the way, I got to tell you, there's a crack in the basement. Now I've just killed any opportunity I have. But in each case, I'm trying to be honest. So how you do it, 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 that makes a difference. So that's the first criteria, truthfulness. We, We tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. The second thing that we talk about is you have to use the psychology that is natural to the situation. So by that, I mean, I I don't invoke a false sense of um, social proof. I don't claim that lots of people maybe are doing something when they're not really. I don't use a false sense of scarcity. Um, You've probably both had this happen where salespeople tell you, hey, if you buy today, I can save you 15%. But if I have to come back another day, I can't give you this deal. And the reality is there's nothing scarce there. so we don't invoke a false sense of scarcity. We, we use the psychology that's natural to the situation. And then the third criteria is whatever I'm proposing, it's not just good for me, but it's also good for you. Stephen Covey would call it a win-win. I like to say, good for you, good for me, then we're good to go. If what I'm putting forth or asking of you is also in your best interest and it's in my best interest too, that's okay. And I'm being truthful and I'm using psychology that's natural to the to the environment that we find ourselves in. If I'm fulfilling those three criteria, I can feel good about the fact that I am ethically trying to influence you, not manipulating you. Do you do you always think of do you always think of manipulation as as pejorative or negative? I'm just thinking that sometimes in counseling and mental health, I think of the word as as not always negative. In, in the sense of often with, you know, your example of parenting, there there's a way in which it feels like parents are sometimes trying to get their kid to do something mm-hmm. that some might construe as manipulation. Uh, schools getting kids to do something in the classroom that might feel like manipulation, but it's not pejorative or negative. What's your, what's your thought on that? Um, I would always say if there's a, a way to do it without that, then I would go that route. Um, the word manipulation can have a, a positive connotation, right? If I'm a woodworker, I manipulate the wood to create something wonderful. But I think it's I think where we've moved in society and definitions always change over time. Nobody wants to be manipulated. And and shortly I'll tell you the story about how that one word changed the course of my career. And it really I'll say it's the course of my life. But nobody would would feel comfortable 
if they found out their um, financial advisor, their insurance agent, a car salesman went to a class on how to manipulate customers. But if, but if, so I think the words that we use are incredibly important. Um, and I always steer clear of, of using the word manipulation. I steer clear of talking about weapons of influence. Uh, even Cialdini used that term early in his career in his book, because sometimes these influence techniques were weaponized against you. But I really steer clear of that because the word weapon is not something that is positively looked on in our society today. Yes. Yeah, so as I'm listening to this, the, the kind of the context that naturally pops to mind is sales. You talk about insurance sales, you talk about car sales and, and whatnot, but influence isn't, isn't just a sales uh, thing. I mean, we, we, we're constantly in a position of influence. You know, Matt talks about getting our kids to do things, um, influencing our spouses, mm -hmm. influencing clients to have better behaviors. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I say uh, womb to tomb. The moment that a baby comes into existence, he or she is trying to get some needs met. They can't verbalize that, so they cry. Mom or dad has to figure out, do they need to be burped or changed or fed or just held? But they're trying to get their needs met. And then as we grow older and we learn how to communicate in different ways, we learn new ways to try to get those needs met. And, and really, until the day we die, we are interacting with people trying to get our needs met. And so that's a form of trying to influence people's behavior. What people don't realize is how much they actually use influence or persuasion in a typical day. And I highlight this in the book. Um, Dan Pink, who's authored many books, wrote a book called To Sell as Human. And he cites a survey in that book of more than 7,000 American business workers who were asked the question, how much of your day do you spend trying to influence, persuade, or convince people in ways not related to making a sale? So these non-sales people came back with an average of 40%. So in an eight-hour day, that means a typical person spending about three hours of their day trying to get people to do things for them. So I tell people, if you're going to, if this is a skill that's you're going to use throughout your life and you're going to be using it at work three hours a day or more and you're going to use it when you go home it's probably worth figuring out how to do it well yeah good stuff so in your book let, let's get into some of the the principles of, of influence and and i guess what i'd like to do is maybe lay out some of those principles and then maybe talk about some some real application um okay. to them so there's three that jumped out particularly to me that this is just me and, and maybe maybe there's some others that uh, uh, Matt um, was drawn to or, or maybe some that you feel are important to discuss. But there were three uh, principles that, that jumped on my jumped out at me. But before I, I jump into those, you, you make it a point to call these principles. I've seen them written as rules or laws in other places or techniques in other places, but you call them principles and, and you talk about words matter. So mm -hmm. share with us a little bit about the intentionality behind principle. Yeah. Um, so really, if you look at the word principle, it, it, you break it down, it is uh, a rule or law when we talk about that and of human behavior is what we're talking about here. But when it comes to something like a law, um, I've got my cell phone in my hand here. The, the law of gravity says if I throw it up each and every time it will come down unless it's interacted by some outside force. I can never tell you that if you use these principles, even if you're using them completely correctly, that you'll get 100% of the people doing what you want. Um, so I would defer more to its their rules that our brains typically operate by. But I like the word principle because the more that I have studied this and the more that I have internalized it, they become, these principles become how I live and how I operate. And I think as we start talking about them more deeply, you'll, you'll more clearly see that. So it's almost become like a philosophy for me of how, how we can live our lives, how we can live our best lives. I like to say that, you know, our ability to get people to say yes, it's critical for our professional success. I think all your listeners would understand that. And it's also really, really important for our personal happiness, that the, the better that we understand how to communicate with people at home, our friends, family, neighbors, the easier it is for them to say yes to some of the things that we're asking of them, the less friction that we have. And that tends to be more peace and happiness. So 
really uh, using principles because it's become almost philosophical for me. Yeah. Um, I think as people hear these, a lot of, a lot of what you say and write in your book, the, they're things that we can naturally observe, or as you, as you put names to it, we're gonna be like, Oh yeah, I know that. Or, Oh, I do that. I, that's what I do. And, and so some of these things are, are natural to some, to some degree. Um, and we're not aware that we're using them. So to understand this is, is very powerful. I said, well, they are natural in that they describe how human beings think and behave. And so every person listening to this podcast is a human being. And they will either think of a time or two where it caused them to respond. Maybe it was to a salesperson. Maybe they'll go, oh, that's why I bought that. Or, oh, marketing, that's how they got me to go to the store. But they'll also start recognizing maybe how they've unknowingly tapped into these principles And that's why people respond to them the way they do. What I want people to begin to understand is as as we define these things, then people start noticing it more. And as they start noticing it, particularly opportunities for them to tap into it so they can start more thoughtfully and more strategically looking for ways to bring that into their communication so they can enjoy that success and happiness. Yeah, the the three principles that I kind of want to focus in on are the principle of reciprocity, the principle of liking, and then the principle of consistency. And I made some 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 notes on those. And for some reason, those were the three that jumped out at me. The the principle of reciprocity, if you've ever read what 21, 21 rules, 21 irrefutable rules of leadership, right? Is that it? John Maxwell, I think, I think he leads off with the he calls it the law of reciprocity. Talk to us about the law of reciprocity. Well, can I pull a, a flip on you? And can we start with liking? Because I think that that becomes very important. Yeah to how you engage reciprocity. Absolutely. Um, So um, the principle of liking, everybody's gonna get this. We, it's easier for us to say yes to those we know and like, okay? Um, That is not rocket science. Every person listening to this understands that. It's easy to say yes to anybody that we know and we like. Um, Getting people to like us is not that difficult. You know, you just do a little bit of research and you realize if we find out we have something in common, uh, maybe we realize we grew up in the same hometown, cheer for the same sports team, went to the same university, have the same pet, whatever it is. When we find out we have those things in common, it's very easy for you to like me because lots of studies show that we like things and people and places that we see as similar to ourselves. Or if I were to pay you a genuine compliment, you feel good, the endorphins flow, and and, uh, you will naturally like me more. But the key here is not that I try to get you guys or your listeners to like me. The key is that I would try to come to like you. And the good news is the same things that will make you like me will make me like you. So if I am strategically thinking, you know, I want to find out things that we have in common, Eric, because I will like you more. I want to find things I can compliment you about, Matt, because I know that will will make me think more highly of you and like you more. And the reason this is so important is because you and your listeners, you all have BS meters. You can tell when somebody really likes you. And when you really believe someone likes you, you become so much more open to what they might ask because we all believe deep down, we all believe friends do right by friends. And the good news is, the more I come to like you guys, the more I do want your best. So whatever I'm putting on the table as a proposal or trying to influence you, you start to realize it's coming from a good place because Brian really likes me. It really cares for me. And it is coming from that good place. And so I like to say it's a virtuous cycle. I want the best for you. You know, I want the best for you. And even if you have to say no to me, you knew it came from a good place. And, And I know it came from a good place. If more people would lay hold of this, if more people would go into situations and say, the number one priority for me is I need to come to like the people I work with. I need to like the customers we serve, the vendors that we interact with. And that is on me to make the choices about talking about what we have in common, finding out about you, looking for the good, paying the compliment. That's to me the foundation of really being able to ethically influence somebody. Because if I come to like you, I will never manipulate you. What a uh, what a powerful and appropriate message in the current climate we find ourselves in this uh, 
in this world, right? Hey, I, I want to, I just want to pause there and highlight that for a minute, because I think what you're saying is, is uh, really revolutionary in a lot of ways. And it's that um, persuasion is related to liking and we can, there is some research about how people come to like each other, but the, the goal that you're, that you're sharing is that the goal mm-hmm. is not to act in a way in, in the interaction mm-hmm. in such a way that the person comes to like me or like you, mm-hmm. but for me as the actor to work hard in that interaction, to find things that to like about the other person. And so right. that like transforms the interaction instead of mm-hmm. me positioning myself, sharing things about myself that I think you might like, which is kind of like what social media is about right now, mm-hmm. which is, you know, bringing up the term liking, um, reminded me of that, but it, this is, this is transformative in that it's me seeking to find things out about you that are so interesting, so compelling, so warm, so mm-hmm. inviting that now I've kind of fallen in like with you yes. and now, and now I'm, I, we're, we're, in a, in this cycle of now wanting to perpetuate goodwill and do Mm -hmm. things for each other and say yes more. And that, that seems to me like gold. Yeah. And, um, you know, going to the heart of what you do in your, in your couples counseling, Matt, um, when people stop focusing on themselves and what they want and what they're not getting and all of those things, and if they can just stop and say, and this will this will tap into reciprocity as we start to get into that. But if they start looking at that other person and saying, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? Uh, that's what starts, I think, really transforming. And, and there's so many little things that we can do. I by no means have a corner on the market, but I'll share that um, on my iPod, I've got a playlist called Jane. That's my wife. Who you, you, have you have an iPod? You have an iPod. Well, my, <laughs> my iPhone now. <laughs> there you go. Um, but I have a I, I've had a playlist for years. Yeah. And it's called Jane and it has all the songs that make me feel good when I hear them. You know, when I had my corporate job and I had my 25 minute drive home from downtown Columbus, when I would listen to that, that would change how I felt. It would change how we would interact when I walked into the house. Yeah. I have one for my daughter. If I'm gonna go out and have coffee with my daughter and I'm listening to that playlist, it changes how I feel and it makes me a better better in terms of all of our interactions mm-hmm. that's that's available for everybody but mm-hmm. it's it's changing how i think about them and then they change how they respond to me based on that but it started with me yeah, it, like in an equation you're changing your own input into the equation mm-hmm. and therefore the the product the outcome is is different yes i think um abraham lincoln it, it's always described abraham lincoln and according to google he said it um, but i'm not quite sure he said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. Mm-hmm. That's exactly and, it. And that's a, that's a powerful um, statement. He also said that if you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Right. So talk to us. How, how do we come, particularly with people who, oh man, we might, they, they might be hard to like. How do we how do we draw nearer to like somebody? Okay, I've got a great story for that. When when I was working for the insurance company and I was in the sales area, but the guy who headed up the claims operation really liked the social psychology, the behavioral economics, and the things I was doing, and so he invited me to start working with the claims area. First meeting I go into, and I'm sitting at this table, and in across from me sits down this guy, who does not have a happy look on his face, and he's the claims trainer. And my sense was, he's looking at me like, what are you doing here? This is my gig. I mean, his body language even kind of was such that it was like mine. And um, so I got this bad vibe. We had some interaction. And then I told the the, uh, person who headed up claims, I said, hey, I'm done with all my sales training for the spring. And if you need me, I'm I'm available. I thought he's going to invite me to meetings. He said, great, would you go out on the road? with this individual, would you go out on the road with him to all of our claims offices and give your presentation? So six of like the next eight weeks, I'm gonna be on the road with this guy who clearly doesn't like me. At least that's my perception. Funny thing happened the very first time we're traveling, we stop at Starbucks, going back to the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Spending retirement. And okay. uh, no. and I order a, a, a cup of coffee and I say, can I have one of those little green sticks for my coffee? And they give it to me. and. 
he goes up and he orders coffee and he said, I'll take one of those green sticks too. And then the lady goes, I'm sorry, I just gave the last one to him, yeah. meaning me. And uh, so I turned to him and, and his name's Brandon. And I said, hey, Brandon, you can have my green stick. And he's like, no, it's yours. I said, come on, I don't, I don't need it really. I, I drink my coffee fast, but he wouldn't take it. The next week when we're traveling, I get to the airport early and I'm relaxed and he comes walking down the terminal. And I said, hey, Brandon, I got something for you. And he goes, what? And I pull out of my briefcase a green stick. And I said, in case you ever need it. And he laughed. And then we started talking a little more, started finding out that we had things in common. I had competed in powerlifting when I was in college. He had done that. He ran ultra marathons. I ran marathons. We found that we had a lot of things in common. And all of a sudden, the ice was broken. And we started having a really good time. The interesting thing was at the end of that six or eight week travel, because he had booked all the flights, got the car, drove, had to sit through my presentation like 24 times. Um, I got him a Starbucks card, a card that was related to some of the training that we did and a, a green stick. And I put that in there as kind of a ha ha. When I went to his office one day, the card and the stick were on the wall. Mm. And I realized that meant a lot to him. And uh, we became really good friends. And when he left the company, he has been one of my biggest advocates. But but that's a story of somebody that I sensed didn't like me. And rather than say, well, fine, if you don't like me, the heck with you. I said, no, I've got to put into practice what I preach. And, and I did. And now I've got a, a great friend, somebody I'm going to be having coffee with again here in the not too distant future. So um, to all the people listening, um, when you feel like you don't like somebody, know that there are probably other people who don't like that person. There's probably some defense mechanisms up, but if you can break through, what I've always found is there's wonderful people behind the defense mechanisms. And sometimes you win them over. And like you said, they become your biggest advocates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in your book, you, you, I mean, your story is, is a, uh, is a great illustration of the three points that you talk about the principle of liking commonality, find commonality, mm -hmm. look to compliment, look to pay a compliment and then cooperatively work together, look for opportunities to be able to work on, on things yep. together. And, and all three of those are in that story. Yeah. So I, I know yeah. you're moving on to a principle. No, go ahead. I want to ask kind of a, a, a meta question. Um, the story that you just told um, was, was really meaningful to me. One of my jobs is I'm a teacher and I often tell stories. And I noticed that my students really like stories and it sometimes really drives home a point or makes a point very concrete, uh, gives a way, a, a way for the student to, to access the material. In your framework of influencing people, what role does storytelling play in the sense of the story that you just told? How is that or what, where does that fall into the principles? Well, it really doesn't fall into the principles per se. You can learn about all these principles and not understand anything about storytelling. But I do think weaving them into stories makes it that much more powerful because humans do like stories and people could envision him walking down the terminal and me handing the sticker when, when that lady said, you know, sorry, I gave the last one to him. You can almost envision the interaction there. And so I have learned that when I can put those things into a story, uh, it just resonates more. And because I focus so much on communication, I, I almost look at myself sometimes as a comedian who goes to the, the various clubs and, and practices his or her craft in how can I do this better? And I'm always a, an advocate of fewer words is better. If I can talk about, uh, for example, my, my daughter, um, and I say when she's 14, turning into a young woman, two hour showers and boys, I don't have to say anything more than that. Everybody who's ever raised a girl gets that. I don't have to go into this long explanation. So that's where I think it becomes really important. Taking these principles and then learning how to weave them into stories is far more powerful than just systematically listing them out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And th this, I mean, a lot of the principles tie together in, in that story. There's a lot of that, the, the principle of reciprocity. So talk a little bit about that. Okay. So the reason we wanted to start with liking is because when we find out more about people, then our giving through reciprocity can be much more powerful. Uh, for people who don't know or aren't familiar with the term reciprocity, when we talk about it, 
we talk about reciprocity being that that obligation that we feel to give back to people who first give to us. And social psychologists are in agreement that all human societies raise their people in the way of reciprocity. So anywhere we go in the world, we know that if we give, people will feel some sense of obligation to give in return. Um, here in America, when we raise kids, that's where it really begins. Um, for most parents, that when someone does something nice for their child, they say to their kid, what do you say? And little boy or little girl says, thank you. But you start getting conditioned to recognize when someone does something for me, there's an expectation that I should do something in return for them. Now, as I explain this, everybody gets it. But where people fail to put it into practice are so often in their daily life. And I will give one example that I had seen on the internet. There was a meme going around quite a while ago, and it was the rapper Eminem. And he says uh, something like, I don't care if you're male or female, black or white, gay or straight. If you're kind to me or if you respect me, I will respect you. And everybody was cheering that like it was um, revolutionary. And I chimed in and said, wouldn't it be better if he had said, I don't care if you're male or female, black, white, gay, straight, I will respect you. I hope you'll respect me. In other words, give what you want first and watch how people respond. Because otherwise, we're, we're all holding back, waiting for the other person to respect us first. That's really what he said in his meme. I'm waiting for you to respect me, then I will respect you. And I'm like, no, no, no. Give it. And people will reciprocate with it. And it's not necessarily give with the expectation of reciprocation. Just give. Right. I, I, I say uh, we don't want to adopt a give to get mentality because people when people start sensing you're only giving because you want something in return, they'll they'll start rejecting your giving. I say we should adopt a, a give mentality because it's the right way. It's the best way to live life. But I also recognize when I do that, that because people do feel that natural obligation, that when I need help, I can survey my network of, of people, my friends, my family. And when I see that somebody has the right skill set, I can feel comfortable reaching out to them because I know that I've been giving first and they'll probably want to give in return. Yeah, there's a, um, one of our earlier episodes is called The Giving Principle. And we talk about the entire the entire episode is about um, one of my five pillars of financial security is giving that, uh, that giving kind of changes how we, how we see people, what we think mm -hmm. about things. And it kind of, in a lot of cases, it connects us to, with something of higher value. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's, it's hard just to, to, to give to something that you don't care about. You know, it's better to give and connect. Right. Uh, and, so. and something listeners also need to focus on. We, we have all encountered people who are maybe over the top givers, um, but they won't receive. And that's bad because if people are feeling this sense of obligation, they want to do something for you. That is a na very natural feeling for most people. And when you say no, 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 or you reject that, you are rejecting their opportunity to engage with reciprocity and, and complete that cycle. And you don't want to do that. When somebody, when somebody, especially when you get to the, the principle of, of unity, which, which says uh, it's easier for us to say yes to those who are of us, when we have a shared identity. Um, I often have used my father who served in the Marines from 1962 to 1969, and he served in Vietnam. Ever since I was a little boy, I could tell that when my dad met another Marine, particularly one who had been in combat, he felt close to them. Almost, I almost thought he was closer to them than me, his own flesh and blood. I understand now why that's the case. But the thing that's interesting is when he helps a Marine, in a sense, he's helping himself. When they would help him, in a sense, they were helping themselves too. If there was any rejection of of the help at that point, you're actually then hurting the other person because they're also doing it a little bit because if we have a shared identity, then when I help you, it's almost like helping myself. And if you don't let me help you, then it's like, I can't even help myself. It's, it is bad to reject those who are trying to reciprocate for us. You know, as a, as a parent, um, 
this is interesting to me. Just all of this dialogue is certainly interesting, but this this part about reciprocity, I've been thinking about like why I sometimes feel very motivated to do something for my kids. Why I feel very motivated to give them a break or help them out or something like that. And um, we in our home, we've been talking about finances lately, Eric. So you'll, you'll be glad to know that. And I have one kid that doesn't want a whole lot or doesn't need a whole lot, doesn't ask for a whole lot. And it's gen. Gen, generally pretty helpful, does things that I ask him to do. And so for him, if he asked me for something, I'm more likely to just say, please have more, have it and have more. There's a, a reciprocity to that. I have another kid that spends all of his money. Um, he's always out of money, um, always low on money. But generally when he goes to the store and buys something, he buys something for me or he buys something for everybody. It's like, hey, like Dad, he you want does, a snowball? Can I borrow three bucks? Yeah. <laughs> or um, I have, it's more like this. It's like, hey, I'm going to the snowball stand. Um, and then I'm thinking like, I hope he has enough money. And he comes back with two snowballs, one for me and one for him. Mm-hmm. And then when he's out of money, I'm more likely to go, I, I want to give him something because I know that he spent his money on others. And so that that's very two kinds of reciprocity acting on me or, or influencing me, um, but both effective. Absolutely. Um, we teach, you know, again, we, we, we teach people reciprocity uh, with my daughter, an example of engaging reciprocity and avoiding friction when she was 14 and she was turning into that young woman, the last thing she wanted to do on a hot summer day was go out and help dear old dad by cutting the grass. But I traveled a lot and I could use the help. I knew if I would have engaged her in a negotiation about, you know, potentially giving her more money and her allowance to cut the grass, uh, she either would have said how much and probably would have tried to ask for a lot more. And I wasn't asking her to cut the grass every week, only when I traveled. Uh, or if if I would have offered more money, she might have said, Dad, I hate cutting the grass so much that thanks, but no thanks. I don't want the raise. And the worst thing I could have done was pull the dad card and said, well, fine. You know, now you do it for free because I'm your dad. And I said so. So I thought about it and I gave her a raise in her allowance. We were talking one day and I said, Abigail, I'm going to give you a raise in your allowance, $10 a week. And she asked why. And I told her things I was legitimately proud of. But I also understood that when I needed a favor, it would be easier because I had done something nice first. So several weeks after that conversation, I'm getting ready to travel. And I turned to her and I said, hey, Abigail, um, I'm getting ready to go out of town. Would you mind cutting the grass while I'm gone? And I could see the look on her face. She's about ready to give me the, dad, please don't make me do that. I hate that. And I just said, time out. I said, I just gave you a raise in your allowance and I didn't ask for anything. Can't you help me? And she thinks for a moment, she goes, okay. She never liked cutting the grass, but she never resisted after that because she understood that was nice what dad did. Dad does nice things for me. It's the least I can do. And that makes me want to do even more for her as you were describing, Matt. It just, you know, I I like surprising her and say, you know, she's going to go out. Hey, here's 40 bucks. You know, you and Tyler have a good time tonight. I just enjoy doing that because there's no obligation. It's just out of goodness. But then she responds to that. And so we have, again, we have this kind it's of virtuous. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, everybody wins in, in a situation like that. Yeah. I was thinking about that just from a parenting standpoint, Matt, your story about your, your kids and kind of their, their differences in personalities. And um, I'm kind of thinking of my own father where he always wanted to be fair with the three of us, never equal, but fair. And, and, and I was just trying to kind of thinking about that. So sometimes, um, you know, one might get something differently than the other, but there's an element of fairness in it. Um, but it's still the sense of, of giving. So that's, that's, that's good. I, I, I like all this so far. Um, and we're kind of, kind of switch a little bit here from reciprocity to the principle of consistency that this, this one is of interest to me because I just got done reading a book, Atomic Habits. And I think we might've chatted about this just in emails, Brian, about Atomic Habits. And as we're developing new behaviors and new habits, um, 
there's something about the law of consist or the I'm sorry, the, the principle of consistency that struck me. So talk a little bit about the principle of consistency and, and let's see where that takes us. Okay. So consistency describes uh, the reality that most people feel an internal psychological pressure and an external social pressure to be consistent in what they say and what they do. Uh, this is usually revealed when I ask people, uh, have you ever given your word to somebody that you'd be somewhere or do something, but you had to back out? Of course, every hand goes up. I mean, the longer you, you can't avoid it. Um, and then I would say, but I'm sure your reason was legitimate. Your friend understood, but how did you feel? And I will hear words like guilty, awful, horrible, terrible, even though their reason was legitimate and their friend understood. And I said, so there's your indicator. We feel this internal pressure. Uh, consistency really starts with us. We want to feel good about ourselves by keeping our word. It's driven from within. But there is an external pressure, too, because when we commit publicly, we don't want to look bad in the eyes of others. So it's a really powerful driver of human behavior. But the key is getting somebody to commit to us. If I tell you, Eric, that you need to save 2% more of your income to meet your financial goals, um, you've not committed to anything. You're not going to really feel bad if you don't save the 2%. But if I say, Eric, be upfront with me, are you going to go to the bank and set up your account so that 2% is withdrawn and you can reach your financial goals? The moment you say yes, you feel that internal trigger is happening. You don't want to come back to me later and say, I didn't do it. You don't want to look bad to me, but you don't want to feel bad about yourself. So the key for this principle I always tell individuals is stop telling people what to do and start asking. If we move away from the traditional telling somebody what to do and we ask, then when they say yes, they are far more likely to do what we need them to do. Yeah, so, so the, con the consistency principle if I understand it, is is it is it getting or asking the person to make a commitment to something that then they they are internally motivated to keep? Yes, they're uh, wanting that, to be consistent with themselves. Yes, and that is by asking and getting them to affirm or commit. That is one way of doing it. Another way is by tapping into what they've already said what they've done, what they believe, what they value. When you understand what those are and what you're asking lines up with that, people want to be consistent in what they say, do, believe, value, and so it becomes easier for them. A mental picture might be this, that when I worked in downtown Columbus and I lived about 15 miles away, it was a straight shot on Interstate 71 to get home from downtown. There's also the outer belt. If my wife had texted me and said, hey, stop at the store on the way home, if that store was right along the way in the straight path, it was very easy for me to do. But if the store was way out on the outer belt and forced me to go out of my way, I was a lot less likely to do it. That's a mental picture for if we line up with what people have said, done, and value, very easy for them to say yes. But if we're asking them to make a decision that goes outside of those, it becomes very, very hard to get them to say yes. Yeah. So, so I think about this in, from two perspectives. One as the one who's trying to influence. Mm -hmm. And then the other perspective is the one who's being influenced. So I'll give you a really good example of, of the, the principle of consistency. About a year and three months ago, I joined a local CrossFit gym. And Jody, the owner of our gym, calls all her members athletes. I mean, the reality is we're a bunch of middle-aged people who are out of shape that are trying to get in shape, but she calls us athletes. So when she says her athletes, I sit here, I, I stop and think, okay, what do athletes do? Well, athletes work out. Athletes eat well. Athletes take care of their bodies. Well, what do, what do middle-aged out of shape people do? Well, middle-aged out of shape people drink too much beer or scotch. We watch too much TV. We sit at our desks all day. So by mm -hmm. her um, saying and calling us her athletes, like I, I'm starting to, mm -hmm. I'm an athlete. I'm an athlete. I work out. I haven't missed outside of COVID and some, some quarantine stuff when, when the gym was closed and travel. Mm -hmm. And even when I traveled, I still worked out because my thinking is I'm an athlete and I have to act in a way that's consistent with that. Mm -hmm. 
That's perfect. That's a perfect example. Uh, Dale Carnegie, uh, in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, would say, give them a fine reputation to live up to. He wasn't a social psychologist, but he was pretty astute observer of the human behavior. And he recognized that when you give somebody that reputation, athlete in your case, you will find a reason to live up to that. And when I talk about sometimes this has a lasting impact, when you can touch somebody's self-identity, their core, and that begins to change, then all of a sudden you don't need her to tell you to get to the gym. You're going to go to the gym because you see yourself as an athlete. and That's what athletes do. So this principle is is incredibly powerful when it's when it's tapped into the right way and it touches somebody's core and it starts to change some of their self identity. Yeah, my my wife and I just watched a um, it's a series on coaches and you think of you think of influencers and you think of you think of coaches and there was one particular episode on I'm going to butcher his name Patrick Moratogalu who is the um, coach for Serena Williams. And when, when she came back, I think off of her injury in her first, um, in her first, uh, match at Wimbledon, she lost the first match and she was, and I don't know much about tennis. So I, I learned all this in a 30 minute episode. Um, but she was apparently terrible at the net. She was just getting, she was, she was slow to come to the net. So she was getting beat a lot, um, at the net. So after the first match, he, uh, her, her coach was, he had to get her to perform better. So, you know, she, she was upset and he, he basically, now he lied to her, but he got the result that he wanted. He said, your stats of the net were great. And she's like, I, I did terrible. I got beat at the net. He goes, I, I know what you feel, but your stats said you hit 80% of your shots at the net. And he said her next match, she was fantastic at the net. Um, so he was just talking about how he knew if I could get her to think that she played good at the net, I knew what she was capable of doing. And, and I was kind of thinking of that in the context of the law of consistency. Like I played good at the net. That's I, I'm a good tennis player at the net. And he got her to believe that. And she played and ultimately won. Mm-hmm. So an application that I've been thinking about listening to, to this um, is in, in therapy, it's frequent that clients will begin therapy uh, in this first or second ses- session, asking for something to do, asking for homework, asking mm-hmm. for some direction, and it's routine that even if I know what they should do or think I know what they should do or have a great idea of something they could do, if I assign that to them, it's it's common that they don't do it by the time that I see them again. So one, one of the things that I'm hearing from you about homework and therapy is uh, for for us instead of as therapists, instead of telling the client what to do, asking them what they would like to do. So in, mm-hmm. in this case, uh, hey, Doc, what do you have any homework for me? Simple question. Yeah, sure. What would you like to do? And yeah. getting them to commit or line up something that, that fits well within their value system is more likely that they'll do it. Mm-hmm. There's a sales trainer named uh, Tom Hopkins who puts it this way. When you say it, they doubt it. When they say it, they believe it. When we ask questions and people come up with the answer themselves, they're always more committed because when they think that they came up with it all by themselves, they own that. And we like to think that our ideas are good ideas. And so it's always more effective, even if they look at you as that person who's the authority, who's the expert. um, It's always going to be better if you can ask the right questions and get them to come up with suitable answers. And sometimes they come up with ideas that are uh, better than you might have thought of. It, but they'll, they will own that more. How do I get my kids to come up with the idea to wash dishes at night? Well, let's think Rock about this, then. Um, <laughs> this. I mean, this therapy session well, right here. <laughs> well, one, you know, um, I think one thing is, you know, giving acceptable alternatives. So maybe there's a number of things that they could be doing right after dinner. One could be wash the dishes, one could be dry the dishes, one could be empty the dish. But but when you give people a choice like, hey, we need some help here. So um, and what's your what's one of your kids' names, Eric? Alina. Lena? Alina. Or yeah. Alina. 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 So it might be, hey, Alina, um, we need some help tonight. So which do you want to do? Do you want to wash the dishes, dry the dishes, or empty the dishwasher? She's got a she's got some choices. And she's probably going to choose one of those one of those choices, right? Um, I used to tell my wife when our daughter was little, you never ever want to say to a, a, a child, "What do you want to do today?" 
Because the yeah. moment they say Disneyland, you're like, no, we are not getting on a plane and going to Disneyland. Everything's compared to Disneyland. But giving structured choices like, hey, today, do you want to go to the movies? We can go to the mall or we can go to the library for reading. What do you want to do? And almost every time they'll choose one of those. You're happy because they're all acceptable. They're happy they got choice. So that is what comes to top of mind right then in terms of um, doing the dishes. Now, you can also refer back to things like, um, you know, what you've done for them maybe recently. Like, hey, you know, how did that thing go? And you talk about that a little bit and then say, I really could use your help tonight. Would you mind doing the dishes? Right. So you've kind of triggered. Yeah, dad did this nice thing. And that's the least I can do is go over and, and do the dishes. Um, a lot of times I would ask my daughter right up front, though, I'd say, Abigail, can I get a favor? And usually she'll say like, yeah. And then I'll say, I, I really need you to do this thing. Would you do this for me? And um, almost every time she would say yes. If she was in a hurry and she was like, dad, I'd love to, but I can't, I'm in a hurry. Then I would probably go to some fallback positions. You know, an example would have been when she was a teenager, if my wife had said in the morning, empty the dishwasher, she told, didn't ask. Uh, my daughter had all kinds of excuses when she didn't do it. Didn't hear you, was busy. I was going to get to it later. But I would usually say something like, hey, Abigail, would you empty the dishwasher before you leave for school? She either said yes and did it. But if she said, no, I can't, I'm in a hurry, I'd say, well, wait a minute. Will you empty it then as soon as you get home from school before you leave for work? And almost every time she would say yes. And there's psychology in that, that when somebody says no to you, if you come back with another request right away, you moderate your position, quite often they meet you part way. So she virtually every time would get the dishwasher emptied in my acceptable time frame, which was before we have to load it again at dinner that night. You talk about that in your book. Yeah, no, or you... Go ahead, Matt. I know that we're running low on time, and I, I appreciate the, the recent examples about parenting. I, you know, as a couples counselor, have to also ask about the application of your, your influencing work on uh, the, the, the marital, the couple relationship. Um, you know, again, you can, you can share as, as much personal info as you want, but how, how does the, your work becoming an influencer affect your, your marriage? Uh, greatly. My, my wife once said to me quite a while ago, she was not feeling good. She was a little down in the dumps. And she made a comment and said, you only love me because you make yourself think positive thoughts about me. And I, I laughed a little and I said, well, if love is a choice, then isn't that a good thing? That it's not dependent on how I feel about you, but it's dependent on what I choose to think. And, and I choose, and I say this a lot, Anything I do in life is better when she's with me. Even that little brief interaction when she popped her head in before she left and she made a joke when she heard you guys say something. Anything I do is better when she's around because I am more myself. I, I'm free to laugh and joke. I know that she's never offended by my sense of humor. Um, and I tell people too, if God would have come to me and said, you can make your own mate, you can put them together. I wouldn't have got somebody as good as her because her combination of beauty, intelligence, sense of humor, caring for people, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I just wouldn't have had enough faith to think I really would have got somebody like that. So Matt, I, I say this because I tell her this, I give her that praise. She sees me praise her on social media in that way. She knows how I, how I really feel about her. I have learned that giving that praise to her, giving public praise and, and things like that, those make a huge difference. I've had ladies, friends who've said my husband or my boyfriend would never put something like that out on Facebook about me. And, and I've seen some of them cry over that. And I'm like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to give the praise to somebody? So that's that's one simple way is, or a couple ways, choosing to look positively on her traits uh, and, and then also giving her the praise that, that she's due. Uh, those make her feel wonderful. It makes me feel wonderful. And it's, again, it's that positive cycle. It's, a, it's an authentic compliment. It's not something you're just, you know, you're not, you're not blowing smoke up her dress. These are authentic compliments, but they're also consistent with who you are, it sounds like, and who you want to be as a, as a spouse. Yes. And I will share one other example. Again, this is just an example. People can think of things to do themselves. But when she turned 52, 
right away, the number 52 for me signified 52 weeks in a year. So I kept building this up as the best gift ever. I kept saying, I'm going to give you something that nobody that I know has ever gotten for their birthday. And she was trying to get her friends to tell her and they wouldn't. But her friends were like, holy cow, that is a great gift. And the gift was this. She turned 52, 52 weeks in a year. I gave her a gift every week for a year. They weren't big. They, sometimes they were inexpensive. But what they said was, I'm thinking about you. I want you to have joy every single week. Uh, my daughter got involved. Sometimes we'd go to the mall together. So now she's in on it and we're spending time together. Um, and she'd tell me like, hey, mom said she wanted to get this, but she didn't want to spend the money. So then I would go get that. But every week I would come up from the basement with a bin, usually of like five to eight gifts, and she'd get to choose what she would want. And she loved it. And um, I would put it on Facebook because some friends wanted to see what the gifts were. So they got something out of it. It was just a win all around for everybody. Yeah. I'm not saying that's what everybody else needs to do, but that's an example of when I am thinking positively about her and looking to get a gift, it makes me reinforce all the things that I love about her. And she that's how she received it. And so it was a it was a wonderful experience. That's good. I hear I hear oftentimes people disparage their spouses and and looking at the law of the rule. The principle. Like you're, right, in the the law, principle. you're into laws, man. These are I am. I am. Rule follower. And the, and, the, and the principle of consistency, I mean, if we have an image of somebody, if we think somebody's a certain way, then, then we're going to act consistently with that. So I love the intentionality and the, purple, the purposefulness of elevating your wife. That's, that's powerful. Any, any listener right now could say, I can create a playlist on my phone. I could stop by the store and just buy something for my spouse and say, you know what? I was thinking of you and I love you. And, you know, I wanted to get you this. Uh, anybody can can do that. And you start to find that when you do that and how they respond, it makes you want to do that more. And again, it's it becomes like we were describing Matt with the kids. You just you naturally start doing it and wanting to do it because how happy it makes them. And then they are reciprocating and you're happy and you got this really positive mojo going. Goodwill. Goodwill is contagious. Mm-hmm. Man, this is this is fantastic stuff, Brian. I know we've been going for about an hour here. And we could probably go on for, for multiple, multiple more, but um, out of respect for your time and uh, we, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. And this is this is great stuff. I love this idea of influence and leadership. And as we're influencing, we we are we are leaders. So give us some parting thoughts. What are the maybe some the takeaways that we need to, that we need to walk away with? Well, I, I think um, if we want to talk about leadership, if you are a leader, getting to know your people and care for your people is incredibly important. And I worked for somebody who that was evident uh, in in the many years that I worked for him, and that made me want to work that much harder. So I, I, I would encourage people, if you are a leader, really begin to get to know your team, not just so that you know them, but that you really can come to like them and that you want the best for them. They know you want the best. They're going to respond in that way. But that's a carryover into every relationship that you have. You don't need to treat them differently just because they're your team, the people that report to you. You can still keep that clear line of, you know, I got to do what's right for the business, but people can also understand that you that you care for them. Um, the other thing I would encourage people to do, too, is to stop telling people what to do and start asking. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised as you make that shift that you will find more and more people doing what you need them to do because they've committed to you and they don't want to feel bad about you know having made a commitment but not following through on it. I, I'm inspired listening to this. I'm inspired. And I, I, um, I think I kind of naively uh, came into this discussion thinking about how to get people to do what we want. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't sound like that's your approach at all. I mean, your approach is, is in, in large part, how do I like the people that I'm around more? How do mm-hmm. I care about the people that I'm around more? How do I express that in a way that one side effect is they want to do stuff for me? Um, it, it sounds like you're coming from a genuine place of, mm-hmm. Uh, not only do you love the people around you, but you like the people around you. You enjoy the people around you, and that, mm-hmm. and that, in the end, that's influential. And uh, to me, that's that's inspiring. So I, I, again, I want to thank you for being with us on the on our show, the Building Us podcast, where we're all about 
trying to improve relationships. And I, 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 I significantly, I, I substantially, I, I really appreciate your contribution to, to building us. Where we, we, we use the motto a lot um, here, invest in your relationships. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like um, what I'm taking from this conversation today is just this, this investment in, in goodwill mm-hmm. and how I enjoy, cherish, and like the people around me. Yeah, I like your word investment too. I, 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 I don't like it when I hear people talk about the sacrifices they make because I say, you know what? When, when you invest in your kids and they grow up and they're these happy, well-functioning adults, you get so much more out of it than you've put in. And when you invest in your spouse, you end up getting so much more out of it. Um, so it is an investment. It's not a sacrifice. Yeah, I, as a as a dad, I picture one day this this day when me and my kids are going to be sitting around the same table, probably with their spouses, perhaps with their children, enjoying a meal, laughing, mm-hmm. hugging, being to fellowshipping, being together. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, your your words have really got me thinking about what can I do now as a person and as a dad to to help that vision come into fruition. So. Uh, building us invest in your relationships dr matt morris maintains an active private practice for couples and families in the greater new orleans area to learn more about his work visit drmattmorris.com eric garcia can be found online at plan-wisely.com his branch office is located in new orleans louisiana the branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance services offered through Garcia Financial Group, LLC. Entities listed are not affiliated.